Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. As you may have heard approximately two months ago, I had interviewed a number of people to create a a composite book on understanding viruses. And now I'm on to the next project where we're working on a book to uh, talk about understanding cancer. And I've identified just through interviewing people, there's, there's really three kinds of creatures in the medical world. There's the researchers, you know, that are doing research. There's the clinicians that are working with patients. And then there's a third kind. There's people that either they personally have been affected by the disease we're talking about, in this case, cancer, or they're um, a friend of theirs or people they know have been affected. And so they've gathered tons of information and really gotten a street MBA in that subject. And that that third person is who I'm talking to today. It's Perry Marshall. I first encountered Perry years ago because he became one of the top marketers in regards to Google, pay-per-click, Facebook advertising, et cetera. And then I had observed uh, following Perry for a long time that he got interested in evolutionary biology. And he has written a book called Evolution 2.0. Uh, he sponsored a massive $10 million prize asking people to help figure out the origins of life itself. And, you know, DNA being a code, uh, who created this code? So he's, uh, he's changed what he's working on. And I wanted to have him here uh, to talk as part of this cancer book because Perry has now also recently launched a symposium, an ongoing symposium on cancer and the evolutionary aspects of it. Um, these are not just looking for drugs. These are not just traditional ways of looking at cancer, but looking at it very differently. So I think Perry's insight is going to be really informative as part of this cancer book. So with that, uh, thanks for coming, Perry. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. And uh, it's really great when interdisciplinary people like yourself are interested in these topics and, and open up a conversation, especially to people that might not otherwise really think about this or ask questions about it. So, well, so welcome to your next rabbit hole to some of uh, the listeners like warning you you may find this irresistibly fascinating yeah yeah hopefully so and you know based on numbers everyone that will listen to this will either be affected by cancer themselves or know someone that that will be unfortunately um so it's an incredibly important topic yes no no one escapes no well, all right. So with, with that being said, Perry, I'm going to ask you a whole bunch of questions on cancer. It's going to take a lot of speculation. I'm deliberately trying to ask questions that are very difficult that people don't know the answers to. And the resulting book, I don't want it outdated by next year. <laughs> not meaning that I don't want progress, but I want the questions to be so difficult that it's going to take a long time for them to re- be figured out, but they're, they're valuable questions. So that's a, that's a good criteria for a book. So first one is, uh, how do you think cancer starts? What are is there one way? Are there multiple ways? You know, the, the prevailing theory seems to be that one cell randomly mutates and, you know, it sets off a cascade and off it goes. And there are some viral based cancers. But, you know, in your, uh, in your talking with people, how do you think cancer starts? I don't think that that traditional explanation is very adequate. I would say that cancer is when a cell, group of cells, or some tissue, gets overly stressed 
and hits a reset button, which as far as I can tell is about a 600 million year old biological mechanism that's found in bacteria and everything else that's, you know, that's, uh, that, that descends from 600 million year old bacteria. And it wakes up in a primitive state. It doesn't know that it's Rich Jacobs anymore. Like Rich, you've had cancer. Yeah. Okay, so like, this is one of the reasons you're interested in this because right. the angel of death has knocked at your door. Yeah. Right? So when you had cancer, uh, where was it? Thyroid? Thyroid, yeah. Okay, so you had some thyroid cells that they got stressed out. They did an internal reset. They woke up in a primitive state and they didn't realize they belonged to Rich Jacobs. They thought that they're floating around in the ocean somewhere and that they're independent cells. So then your immune system came along and said, hey, what's going on here? And when it tried to take them out, their evolutionary machinery switched on and they started evolving to evade capture or death or you know whatever the immune system tries to do with stuff that doesn't belong there. Now, this gets greatly amplified when you do things like chemo and radiation, especially if you don't catch it right away. So if you catch cancer right away, stage one or stage two, you can usually just do some outpatient surgery, cut some stuff out. It sounds like that's what happened to you, Rich, right? You caught it at an early stage. Is that true? Um, yeah, it was somewhat early. I, I, I had to have my thyroid taken out and some lymph nodes. But luckily, I guess, you know, if you're going to get cancer, it's one of the, the best ones you can get. Okay. <laughs> because thyroid cells, um, they, uh, they take up iodine, you know, to function. Yeah. So what I did is I had a surgery to take out, um, you know, the thyroid and some lymph nodes. And then I had radioactive iodine. Mm-hmm. So particularly it's taken up supposedly by thyroid cells. And then the radioactive iodine is a poison dinner and it kills them. So I'm lucky in that regard. Other cancers don't have that ability. And so it's more difficult to treat them. You need generalized chemo. Okay. So you managed to catch it early enough, but tragically what often happens is they don't catch it until stage three or four. And then they hammer those cancer cells with chemo. Mm. And what that's like, it's like drenching a Vietnamese village in napalm and killing 98% of the villagers. But what you didn't kill was 2% of the Viet Cong. And now they are pissed off. And now your rogue Viet Cong soldiers, they go into their bunker and they innovate every possible weapon they can think of and every possible innovation in every possible way of evading your chemotherapy or your radiation. And they switch their evolutionary machinery on full blast. And a month later, you don't have one species of tumor cell. You have a thousand species of tumor cell. It's like having a thousand different kinds of Viet Cong soldiers that each requires a special bullet to kill. And nobody has a thousand special bullets. You got like one or two or three bullets. And so what happens, this happened to my dad, this happened to my 
friend Tom Hubyard. This happened to my friend Rob Berkeley. This happened to a bunch of people that I've lost. They went, they got treatments. Then, then they went to the doctor. The doctor said, hey, your numbers are looking really good. And four months later, they're dead. Yep. Why? Because the numbers looking really good. That was after they napalmed the village. And then four months later was after the Viet Cong got knives, hand grenades, machine guns, anti-aircraft guns, lasers, radar, sonar, uh, x-ray vision, um, you know, gas masks, poison gas, like every possible thing that they can come up with. So, because what is cancer? Cancer is evolutionary machinery run amok. Cancer is when cells go rogue and then the machinery, so every cell in your body has the ability to adapt, cut, splice, rearrange its DNA and evolve. But good obedient cells don't evolve. They just be the liver cell or they just be the lung cell. They just be the thyroid cell doing what they're supposed to do. But when you have a cell that forgets who it is and what it's supposed to be doing, and it wakes up thinking it's a lone ranger or it's in a group of renegades and they're all supposed to survive, now you've got the Viet Cong and now you're in serious trouble. And so one of the problems with cancer is a lot of the treatments just make it worse because they push, they push your tissues into macro evolution. And as soon as that happens, you're done. Yeah, uh, Perry, so I have a question at this point. In, in your example, all the Viet Cong know that they're Viet Cong. They all know that they're you know, the same people. Cancer, from what I've learned, is very heterogeneous, even at uh, early stages. It becomes more so when you know, chemo hits it. But what, how can it be heterogeneous? What, what do you think? You know, there's stresses on the cells. I guess the cells are pushing the reset button, like you said. Um, they're going along their own paths of adaptation, and maybe that's why it, you have you know tumors that are so heterogeneous. But at what point do you think cancer, the cells know that they are something else and not part of the body? They have uh, their own agency, and how is that agency preserved, even though it's it's heterogeneous? Well, so I'm probably partly wrong about this, but what appears to be the case is that. Well, well, so in, in cancer terminology, there are two terms that apply here, monoclonal, multiclonal. Monoclonal means one clone, all the cancer cells are basically the same, more or less. And so that would typically be a early stage tumor where a rogue cell, like a cell or a group of cells has gone rogue and they're all basically doing the same thing. And now their progeny are all clones of the original ones. Okay. And, and when you go to an oncologist and you get a bunch of tests, they can figure this out. You know, they do a biopsy and they're like, oh, well, you know, all your cancer cells are basically alike. So we're going to use treatment X because that'll kill them. Now, they may be right or wrong about that, but the point is, is that um, it's still one species of cancer right. cell, okay? And the word species, I use that very deliberately because you need to, 
you need to think of this much the same way as you would think of a tree of life or zoology or animal classifications. Like, okay, this is one species of cancer cell, just like saying one species of dog or cat, or it's just, it's, we're talking about dogs and we're not talking about zebras, okay? But multi-clonal means we got dogs, we got zebras, we got rabbits, we got corn plants, we got all kinds of stuff. And, and many times chemotherapy and aggressive treatments push monoclonal populations of cells into massive evolutionary proliferation. So it's like, well, we started with rabbits, but the rabbits in 30 to 60 days evolved into muskrats, squirrels, gerbils, rats, mice, and now we've got all these different species and, and nobody has any idea how to kill all of them, right? Like, right. like if you go read a story about like they tried to kill the rabbits in Australia or they tried to kill the goats in the Galapagos, it's like, it's hard enough to just kill one species, let alone all of them. Yeah, no, that's true. And they all have different abilities and different methods of adaptation as well. Right. And, and the, 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 see, the punchline is, is that cells by any reasonable definition are smart and they evolve smartly and they are smarter than we are and they do not evolve accidentally and it's not just random mutation and natural selection. They are actively participating in their own evolution in a contextual response to whatever it is you throw at them. They are making educated guesses as to what's going to work. And what happens in late stage cancers is if you have enough tumor cells that are enough different species, they are collectively smarter than every doctor and every scientist that anybody can find. And, and the fundamental mistake of evolutionary biology is it has assumed that tissues and cells are dumber than we are. And the truth is they are smarter than we are. We just don't know how much smarter. Yeah, I fully agree. If you consider a tumor of, let's say, a billion cells, are all the cells, well, they're certainly not the same cell, cell type, like you call them different species. Do you think that the cells in a tumor, for instance, do they all associate themselves with this organism called cancer? Is it a separate organism from us? You know, if I consider like my liver, the cells of my liver, yes, they, they're part of the liver community, but they're also part of my whole body. But the cells of a tumor, are they a separate entity, a separate organism? Or does each individual cell kind of going its own path, but somehow there's this messy collaboration and, and that's what cancer is. Like, what, what do you think it is? Is it a life form? Is it collaborative when it's, within itself? If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. So I don't know specifically the answer to your question. I can make a guess on everything else I know about biology and evolution. And, and here's the guess. What I have observed about evolution is that organisms of all types are extraordinarily cooperative. And the traditional Darwinian narrative is about it's all survival of the fittest and natural selection and competition and differentiation. That's the narrative. But the truth is, is that you look out the window, you look in a pond, you look in your backyard, you look anywhere there are symbiotic relationships all over the place, including your own mitochondria and 
and, and chloroplasts and all of that stuff. It's all symbiotic, okay? I can only surmise that, um, let's, let's just say, for the sake of discussion, that a tumor is a million Viet Cong soldiers and every one of them is a, is a lone ranger rogue, like Rambo, you know, uh, rebel. Mm. Okay. Let's just assume there's a million of them and every one of them is doing their own agenda. And it's obviously not the original agenda of Rich Jacobs. Right. 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 Well, I can only surmise that they would find incredibly sophisticated ways to cooperate with each other because that's how everything else in biology works. But there's no question that there's a degree of anarchy going on. And you can see that. Go look at pictures of tumors. Like, I, I think you can see this with the naked eye. Go look, you know, go, go to Google Images and, and type in liver cells and go look at liver cells and then type in tumor cells and go look at those pictures. Yeah, they're, they're literally ugly, monstrous looking things, misshapen, yes. like a Frankenstein, you know? Yes. And Michael Levin is a, is a professor at Tufts University, and he's done quite a bit of cancer research, and it's really good research. It's very interesting. If you, if you go to the evolution, the cancerevolution.org website and look at his presentation at our symposium, you'll get a capsule of his research. Michael asks what I think is a brilliant question. He says, the question is not why do we have cancer? The question is, why isn't everything on earth cancer? Hmm. Be because the traditional Darwinian view that is all, um, you know, obsessed with competition and selection and survival of the fittest and the selfish gene theory, um, which is completely obsolete now, but um, that, that way of viewing biology Within that paradigm, the only thing that would make sense is that everything on Earth would be like a tumor. And the, the, it would just be a bunch of Viet Cong soldiers with machetes and knives and guns just killing everything and eating everything in sight. But is that, is that what you see on planet Earth? No, not at all. You see coral reefs and you see, like, in your own body, like, any any normal, healthy human body is a astonishing display of order and organization. Everything's doing what it's supposed to do. The lungs are breathing, the heart's beating, the muscles are moving, the ribs are, you know, every, the skin, the blood circulation, the nervous system, it's all marvelously cooperative. And what Michael's research is saying is that we barely understand the systems by which a human body regulates its tissues and ensures that liver cells do what liver cells are going to do. And digestion does digestion. And bones do bones. And blood marrow produces red blood cells and all of that stuff. And we don't really understand how is it that some of these cells get off track how is it that they forget who they are? How is it, like, how would you convince them to go back to being regular tissues? Well, th there must be ways to do it because Michael Levin's done it. He's gotten, he's gotten tadpole tissue 
to go cancerous with bioelectric fields. And then he's gotten the, the tissues to revert back to non-cancerous standard tissues. We, we all know that some people have spontaneous remission and like all of a sudden the cancer is gone and nobody knows where it went. We know that happens some of the time. So there must be a mechanism by which they like they have an epiphany and they're like, hey, wait a minute, I'm supposed to be Rich Jacobs. Let's just go back to being Rich Jacobs. You know, that life was a whole lot easier than this Viet Cong life of living in caves. <laughs> right? Yeah. And and I wanna I wanna I wanna say that I am using this anthropomorphic language very deliberately. Okay, and I'm I'm not saying that cancer cells. Uh, brush their teeth and say their prayers before they go to bed and read their children bedtime stories. I mean, I don't know about all that. But what I am saying is that it is not a mistake to assign agency to a cell. The mistake is not assigning agency to cells. And it's kind of been taboo in biology for the most part for the last many decades Oh, you, you can't use anthropomorphic language. I'm like, I'm going to use yep. anthropomorphic language until it clearly breaks down because nobody knows what it's like to be a cell. Like Barbara McClintock in 1984, she said an agenda for the 21st century would be to figure out what does a cell know about itself? And I think she is exactly right. And we still don't know. Yeah, no, I agree with you. The anthropomorphic first view is it's our own experience. So why, why ignore your own experience of being a human right? Uh, and, and apply that and not apply that to biology? So I agree with you totally. Right. So, so if you go, what would it be like to be my dog? Well, start with what it's like to be with a human and go from there. Okay. Maybe being a dog is like being a human, except you don't think about uh, this list of things, but you obviously think about this list of other things. You know, maybe it's like being um, autistic or, or, or something. I, I, I don't know. But like you, you have to start there. And I, I think cancer is a disease of identity. And, and this is not what you're going to read in most medical textbooks. And this is why I think the traditional approaches are doomed. They're never going to work. Because if you say, oh, you know, it's just a disease of the genes, well, the genes are a lagging indicator of what the cells are up to. I think it would ever be possible for cancer to be a, a symbiont, like a beneficial one. Do you think it could ever cause a creature to evolve in a different direction where the creature would survive and become this other thing because, you know, it, the cancer had taken over and it, it actually was somehow beneficial? Well, I suspect that that could be the case. I, I don't know. But I think a question that people should be asking is, what do cancer cells want? And how can you give them what they want? Or how could you negotiate with them? Or, okay, here's, here's another crazy idea that I don't think is really so crazy at all. In the Cancer Evolution Symposium, we had a Q&A session, which is on the website, cancerevolution.org. It's on the YouTube channel. And in my Q&A session, there was a psychologist named Eric Kelker, who was listening in. And we were having this discussion. There were all these different biologists and oncologists and different people on the Zoom call. And we're all talking amongst ourselves. And Eric 
latched onto something I said. I said, how do you get a cancer cell out of fight or flight mode? And Eric had an epiphany. He's like, hey, I'm a psychologist. I get patients out of fight or flight mode all the time. How do I do that? I listen to them. I understand them. I emphasize with them. He goes, anytime somebody who's traumatized can sit down and tell you their story, it calms them down. He goes, how do we get cancer cells to talk to us? How does, he said, and then uh, I had a conversation with him later. And he said, Perry, I found experiments. I think he referred to some of Michael Levin's papers. I don't remember exactly. But he said, there have been experiments where they take cancer cells, they implant them in healthy tissues, and the cancer cells will revert to that tissue type. And he said, I think it's because there's intercellular communication between the cancer cells and the tissues, and it causes the cancer cells to realign with the original purpose of those tissues, just like when I have a patient in my office and they have PTSD or whatever, you know, like whatever fight or flight situation that comes up in a counseling session, he goes, you know, when I listen to them and talk through their problems, you know, they, they calm down and they're like, okay, you know, I, I could go home and I can talk to my husband and I can not yell at my kids or, you know, whatever. And so once again, I, I think these anthropomorphic models I, I, think, I think we have to say, what is the psychology of cancer? And, and so this is how I see us getting to answers. And, you know, these are top-down approaches to the problem as opposed to bottom-up approaches to the problem. Yeah, that's why I ask you if, um, if you believe cancer has a sense of self. Oh, I believe it does. And, and, and I, I think that cancer is a corruption of the sense of self. And it's, it's going from the multicellular state to the unicellular state. It goes from, oh, yeah, I'm a liver cell and I got a million liver cell friends all within two inches of me to I'm a Viet Cong soldier and I can do what I want. And everybody's after me and I'm paranoid. A single cell organism gets cancer. It is cancer. But I, I just wonder, um, any thoughts around that? probably not going to be giving you a very complete answer. But from, a, from what I know of Paul Davies' work, Paul and Kimberly Bussey at ASU, they are the source of my explanation that said a cell got stressed out, hit a reset button, and woke up in a primitive state. And the term they use for that is atavism, which is like a, a throwback to an earlier time is what that word means. And what they discovered was that there is a circuit and a set of genes that appears to be about 600 million years old that's in bacteria. And bacteria will wake up in this state when you stress them out too much. And so they connected the dots and they said, well, then this cancer response is like, it's like Windows safe mode on a Windows computer when you shut down the computer improperly and it wakes up to protect itself in this other mode. He's, it's, it's kind of like that. 
Now, whether that can set, well, I, I think if I understand their research correctly, I think they're saying that when, when any organism goes through that reset process, it will start evolving in this more primitive state and it will evolve into something else. So I don't know if that completely answers your question, but that's at least a direction for investigation. I guess, you know, what that brings to mind is what are the similarities between stem cells, whether they're induced to pluripotency or they're just native in the body and cancer cells, because they seem to be similar. I think, I think there are some parallels, but you're past my pay grade. You know, who would be a good person to talk to about that would be Jin Sung Liu at MD Anderson and probably Henry Hang at Wayne State University. I think both of those guys would have very good things to say about that. Okay, excellent. Well, again, <clears throat> these questions, I know they're, they're all very speculative, but it's okay. I welcome the speculation. Yeah, and I, I disclaim everything I'm saying, like <laughs> I'm not guaranteeing it's completely right by any stretch, but I, I think it's a useful way to think about it and to ask questions that, that will be productive. So how coordinated do you think cancers are? Um, do you think tumors, I mean, well, I get a little bit of background. So I, I interviewed a lady named Florencia McAllister and she looked at pancreatic tumors and she saw that the pancreatic tumors themselves had a different localized microbiome than the rest of the pancreas, which is pretty interesting. Um, I don't know if the pancreatic tumors were coordinating with their own microbiome, but they probably must be, and, you know, passaging metabolites back and forth. But cancer itself, do you think it develops its own immune system? I mean, it's evading our immune system, but you think it's coordinated enough to develop its own immune system? And, you know, then I want to ask you about main tumor versus metastases of this communication there and what you think it is. But, you know, start with this, the immune system. I'm sure a lot of the people in the Cancer and Evolution Symposium could answer your question with very very specific data, but the generalized answer to your question is yes. Cancers and tumors um, develop semi-autonomous behaviors that are entirely different from the host. They recruit blood vessels, they recruit food, they recruit nutrients, they recruit oxygen, they, they bamboozle the immune system, they send signals that say, uh, hey, everything's okay over here. Don't worry about us. They confuse the immune system. Um, and again, if you if you look at biology in general through a symbiotic lens, like I would refer you to a film called Symbiotic Earth by John Feldman, which is a biography of Lynn Margulis, who's like the queen of symbiogenesis theory. It's a great documentary. If you look at life through that lens, it would only make sense that cancer cells collectively um, form entire defense systems and ecosystems against the body until the patient is dead. So do you think that the, the main tumor and the metastases are communicating and coordinating? Yes. I think they're doing it chaotically. I think they're like, well, I think they're like the mob. I think they're like gang members. So what, what, are, what are criminals and gang members like? Some of them will sign up to be members of the mob or a crime ring or a gang in a hot second. 
And some of them will never do it. They will insist on retaining their autonomy. And then there's a whole spectrum of people in between that have varying levels of cooperation with the mob or the gang. And, and, and so I, I think in a tumor, you probably have the entire range. And I, uh, you know, the 80-20 principle uh, would suggest that 80% of the tumors are all going to march according to the drum of, you know, whatever cells that they consider to be the leader. And 20% of them are going to be doing who knows what. Hmm, okay. Um, what do you think is the, uh, the, I mean, it seems like cancer is successful, but it also fails because it you know, leads to the death of the person. Right. So therefore the death of the cancer, but does cancer have any own, any unique goals or you think it's the same goals as any other population of cells is survive, proliferate, you know, be happy and create progeny and continue on. I think that's a million dollar question because the knee jerk assumption that I think a lot of people would make is, oh, it's just every man for itself, or it doesn't really have a goal, or it just wants to multiply out of control. But what if that's not quite right? What if some cancers or some parts of cancer have goals that we don't understand? Why wouldn't they? How do I know what cancer wants? But I should be asking myself, what does it want? That's for sure. Yeah, like some cancers are considered to be aggressive and some not. Why? Where does aggression come from? And why, you know, why would some clumps of cancerous cells be aggressive and others not? It's just strange. Okay, that's a million-dollar question. I think, I think that's, that's 10 PhD theses and a Nobel Prize if, if somebody could really get to the bottom of that. Like, what a great question. Well, good. I had to get one good one in there. Yeah. Just kidding. No, it's... <laughs> These are, I think these are fantastic questions and they're, they, they really deserve serious consideration. So where do you think the, um, the breakthroughs are going to be in terms of uh, fighting cancer? Like, what do you think a successful outcome will look like where, you know, someone maybe doesn't rid themselves of it, but they can live with it for the normal course of their days. And what do you think the breakthroughs are going to look like? I think a short term, more immediate breakthrough is figuring out how to maintain a quasi-friendly relationship with the Viet Cong where the Viet Cong soldiers are fat and happy and not recruiting new members all day long and not multiplying. Like maybe there's a way to just sort of pacify them and maybe we can figure out how to not piss them off. I, I, I think that's a really realistic short-term goal. Now, what I think a more long-term goal is there has to be mechanisms by which you convince a rogue cell to revert back to being normal tissue. And I think there's a way to figure out how does a human body maintain its authority over all these cells? And by what process does it lose its authority? And by what process do these cells get stressed out and hit the reset button? How do we prevent that reset button from from getting hit in the first place? I think those are more long-term questions. And I I don't believe that anybody is going to answer these questions successfully until we figure out what triggers the evolutionary response in the first place. And I think the biggest mistake we're making right now is we are underestimating 
the resourcefulness of the individual cell and the evolutionary machinery that's built in. In fact, in most of biology, that whole entire subject's been completely overlooked and frankly botched. And that's like, if you want to solve this problem in a really big way, you have to go to the bottom of the swamp and that's the bottom of the swamp right there. Hey, you know what comes to mind as you're talking is the war metaphor. I, I think it's a mistake. It just I just had the sudden realization that war never even, it never solves anything. At best, maybe it kind of beats people into a, into a submission where they, they begrudgingly say, all right, well, that's enough. We got to move on in this other way. But right. I don't know. Like, what do you think? Do you think it's a mistake to to view it as a war? Yeah. Well, let's wrap up with this question because I think this is a great ending point. Um, I was having a conversation with Megan Macedo maybe a year ago, and I was talking about, you know, how do you, how do you change this whole narrative that the world's swallowed hook, line and sinker about evolution is just survival of the fittest and all of that. And she said, well, Perry, I think this is a love story, not a war story. And when she says that, she is referring to, you know, if you if you study books and literature and storytelling and all that, there are archetypal war stories of, you know, going and killing the bad guys. But that is fundamentally different than a love story where, you know, the estranged brother or relative or whoever comes back and there's harmony and we suddenly figure out, oh, you know, we actually all want the same thing and look, we found a way to get it. And I think, um, I think a great question to ask is how do we switch from a cancer war story to a cancer love story, which goes to, well, how, how do we, how do we convince a cancer cell that going back to its old life as a thyroid cell was really way better than this renegade life of living in ditches and foxholes? Well, very good. Harry, it's been a great call. I mean, like I said, your insights are very different from most people I speak to. So it's important to put them into the pot yeah. and become part of this book. So yeah, I appreciate you being here. Well, thank you. And uh, really appreciate you being so interested in this, Rich. And um, I, I look forward to, to getting this discussion out to my audience as well. So thank you. Yeah, last question. Um, URLs, where can people go to learn more about what you're doing? Uh, go to cancerevolution.org and sign up for to receive the updates. And uh, you'll, you'll get in on the ongoing uh, conversations and webinars that we have with our scientists. And uh, and subscribe to the YouTube channel at cancerevolution.org as well. And uh, that's that's a really great place to start. And then if you want to go a little deeper, um, subscribe to the Evolution 2.0 podcast, which you can find on any of the uh, different podcast channels. So, Okay, excellent. Perry, thanks for coming. I appreciate it. Rich, thank you very much. Take care. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.